one of um, uh, the most famous sociological tests that there um, it, that exists. Um, and I'm, it's a longer test. You can go home today if you like, and I'll tell you about the study in a minute. You can go home today and play with it and kind of see what it says about you. But I want to do it together and kind of see what it says about us and see how we see things um, together and if there's any commonality um, that this test can provide for us, okay? So here's what the test is. The test is going to show pictures. Um, if you were sitting in the front row, I'd probably just spit on you. The test is going to show pictures. You're going to watch... The test is going to show pictures. Um, I'm only going to give you two. And I'm going to ask you what you see in the picture. Now, it's not going to be immediately obvious to you. You're going to have to reflect on it for a moment and, and just say, here's what, think to yourself, here's what I'm seeing. And then I'm going to give you various options for what that picture actually is. We're just going to do two of them, okay? All right, Dina, first, first picture. Take a look at that and let that just kind of roll around in your mind for a few minutes. All right, now you got that, right? Now keep that up there. Now here's, here's some options for what you might be seeing. This could be uh, this card. This could be a picture of a face in that card. This could be a scary face in that card. This could look like to you things that are whirling around a center piece in the card. This could look like for you Two angels hovering, holding hands. This could look like a Scottish crest. Or it could be that you see a flower. All right? I'm going to read those one more time quick, and you can kind of say, yeah, I see that. A face in the card, a scary face in the card. Things that look like they're whirling around in the card. Two angels holding hands, a Scottish crest, or a flower. All right? All right, card number two. Take a look at that for a few moments. Dwell on that for a minute. Let your imaginations run wild. Start to think, what am I seeing when I'm looking at this picture? What is this actually a picture of? I'm going to give you a couple of potential answers for what this is. It looks like a bunny rabbit head. It looks like the face of Jesus. It looks like an x-ray, especially the part near the bottom. It looks like the imprint of a face with an open mouth. It looks like an elongated horse's head. And finally, it looks like two French poodles and their reflections below them. So look at that. I'll read them one more time for you. It looks like a bunny rabbit head, the face of Jesus, like an x-ray, especially the part at the bottom, the imprint of a face with an open mouth, an elongated horse's head, or two French poodles and their reflections. Good? Let's go back to the first picture. Okay, now, uh, you're going to do better than the first service. First service, I was telling people, when, I, when the answer hits that you saw there, I want you to raise your hands high, and I was getting a lot of this. And I'm like, that's high. Um, so you're going to raise this as a participatory part. And there are going to be some people where there's only going to be one person that saw. And that doesn't make you a deviant or anything like that. So that'll be fine. <laughs> right? Yes, yeah, it's just what you saw. If you saw 
a face in that card, raise your hand. If you saw a face, okay. If you saw a scary face in that card, raise your hand. A lot of people saw a scary face in that card. If you saw things whirling around in that card, raise your hand. You got an interesting spread here. If you saw two angels holding hands, raise your hand. That's what I saw, by the way. Um, if you uh, think it's a Scottish crest, raise your hand. Oh, one Scottish crest. It's the French guy in the back. That's why he's European. Appealed to his, somehow it got in there. The last is, do you see a flower in there? Does anybody see a flower? No flowers. Hmm, that's interesting. Okay, let's go to picture two. If you see a bunny rabbit head, raise your hand. A couple of bunnies. If you see the face of Jesus in that picture, raise your hand. If you see an x-ray, especially the part at the bottom, raise your hand. Okay, it was a good representation there. If it looks like the imprint of a face with an open mouth, raise your hand. All right. If it looks like an elongated horse's head, raise your hand. That's the one person. You're the only person in two services that saw an elongated horse's head. <laughs> but that's actually one of the, one of the, the answers. Um, and the last but not least, it looks like two French poodles. Raise your hand if you saw French poodles. That's one, the one I saw when I looked at it too. Now, these two pictures that, that we just played with are part of a longer study, a longer test. It's very, very, very famous. It's called the Inkblot Test, and it was divided by Herman Rorsak, Rorsak um, for use in psychotherapy. It's a very famous, the Rorschach, that's how you pronounce it, the Rorschach Test. And what Rorschach developed and what's been used now for a long time is therapists will show patients an ink blot and say to them, what do you see? Let me explain something. You know what you all just saw? Nothing. <laughs> it was merely an ink blot. It doesn't resemble anything. And what the what Rorschach realized, and what, what, what psychologists have realized for years is, whatever the patient is actually seeing is a projection onto the image of his own thoughts and mind. So if the patient sees stars or flowers or clouds, well, that says one thing about his psychological state. And if the patient sees bloodthirsty dragons or sexually deviant images, then that says something else about his psychological state. I'm going to let you all determine where you fall on that spectrum of what you saw. But at its heart, what I love about this test is it gives researchers an ability to understand somebody based on a commonly shared human characteristic. Listen, this is very interesting. We share a common characteristic as human beings, and it's this. We tend to project our own thoughts, our own beliefs onto other things. We tend to see what it is we want to see. You may have read, if you've been going through this material that we're kind of going through over these weeks, Scott McKnight, who is a professor um, at North Park College in Chicago, he gives his students on day one of his class on Jesus a test on who Jesus was. What was Jesus' personality like? So he gives them 24 questions, a personality test about what Jesus was like. And, and so the, each student comes in and they go through and he asks them about what would Jesus be like at a party? What would Jesus be like on the streets? Is Jesus happy? Is he melancholy? And so they determine what the, the, the Jesus was. And then he gives them another set of 24 questions. 
that actually just asks them about their personality, but he does it in different ways, so it's not obvious that they're, they're doing a personality test on themselves. And this has been done over many years now, and it's been studied by other folks, and what they've come to is a fascinating discovery. You know what it is? Everybody thinks Jesus is just like them. If you're the extrovert, if you're the life of the party, in your mind, when you think about Jesus, he's the life of the party. If you're the quiet, reflective guy that's kind of shy and sits in the back, in your mind, Jesus is the, the contemplative Jesus. Not up front, not bold, but more of kind of a, just a, a quiet, solemn figure. It's fascinating. Quote, the test results suggest that even though we like to think we as Christians are becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more the case. We try to make Jesus more like us. It's just what we do. And it makes the famous quote by Voltaire just spring to life. He said, if God has made us in his image, we have returned to him the favor. So we're in the middle of this series called, called Define the Relationship. And the concept here is that if we have misunderstood how we are to relate to God, it has likely resulted for us in our, in our experiences as Christians with frustration, disappointment, and discouragement. I thought this relationship was going to work one way, and it doesn't seem to be working for me. What I expected of the relationship doesn't seem to be true of the relationship. What I'd hoped for are not necessarily the results. And, and so we define, we misdefine how we're to relate with God all the time. In fact, we teach it to our kids. And so then when our kids go off to school, they have a certain set of expectations about the relationship with God. But they quickly realize all the things they've been taught don't necessarily wind up being true of the relationship. And that's why so many of them walk away from God. That's why so many of us of believers, Donald Miller had a great line in some of his material. I don't know if you're reading Donald Miller's, Donald Miller's stuff. He said, when I misde essentially, when he misdefines the relationship with God from what it was meant to be to what he wants it to be, he oftentimes, when he talks about God, feels like somebody selling a used car. He doesn't really believe in the product, but he feels like compelled to move it. So what we've been working on is how does God want us to relate to him so that we experience all of the things that have been promised to us, peace and comfort and hope. Last week I was in Wichita, Kansas. Anybody ever been to Wichita, Kansas? Wichita, Kansas makes Morristown look like a bustling metropolis. I mean, there is nothing going on in Wichita, Kansas. And uh, they call it the city of flight, I think because they had so many, um, they built so many airlines out there. That's like, it was the airline manufacturing capital of the world. So in the city of flight, I was out there, I got on my plane on, on Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon to come back here, and they pulled the plane out, and they said, ah, we're having some problems, we should be able to fix it in a few minutes. Couldn't fix it. They said, okay, we're gonna have to, you know, everybody's gonna have to get off the plane now. I said, okay, not a problem. I mean, it's four o'clock, I'm going to Newark. You know, I'll get home a little later, but that shouldn't be bad. I walk in back into the airport in Wichita, Kansas, the biggest city in the state of Kansas. Four o'clock. 3.50 was my flight. I said, uh, when's the next flight? I gotta get to Newark tomorrow. I gotta, you know, I gotta uh, give this talk in front of people. And they go, oh, that was the last flight for the day. You're here till tomorrow night at eight o'clock. <laughs> the city of flight. And so uh, Steve Fisher, I've been telling Steve, our youth pastor for 10 years, Steve, you know, you gotta have a sermon in your back pocket. 
you got to be ready, Steve, because one day something's going to happen. I don't know what it is, but one day something's going to happen. And I called Steve from the airport, and uh, he picks up the phone. He goes, this is every youth pastor's dream right now. He said, I'm in charge. <laughs> and uh, he did a great job last week. But if you were here the week before, we kicked off this series, Defining the Relationship, trying to understand different ways where we've misidentified the relationship. You ever been in a relationship and you didn't really understand the underlying dynamic? You thought maybe this relationship was going somewhere and they thought this relationship wasn't was just kind of fun and casual. You thought the relationship was exclusive. He thought the relationship was open. And so we misidentify our relationship with God. So we're having these DTR talks. Two weeks ago we had a DTR talk which said one way, the most common way we misunderstand the relationship with God is we live in a posture of what the author of the book that where this is and where your small groups are studying. We live in this life under God posture. See, you were created. There is only one posture. There is only one definition of the relationship that actually works you were created to live your life. Now remember, God made you. He knows how you function. You were created to live life with God. That's how you function. When we were put in the garden at creation, God walked with us in the cool of the morning. We were with God. He was with us. God gave us work and we partnered with God in the work. It was fantastic, right? That's the way you were created. In fact, the scripture says that's the way things are going to end. It says at the end of time, God's dwelling place is now again going to be among the people. He will dwell with them. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them. You were created. The right definition of our lives is life with God. We rarely choose it. Because what we've been trying to do from the creation of time is redefine the relationship so we can be in control of it. We get afraid because there's forces at work in our lives, not the least of which is death. And so we say, if I could figure out whatever these forces are, and, and religion over time has put the name God on these forces, if I can figure out how to control these forces, then I don't have to worry anymore. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. I'm, Adam and Eve are walking with God, they're communing with God, they're working with God, and suddenly a temptation comes along and goes, you don't really need to walk with him, you don't really need to rely on him, you could actually be like him. Here, eat of this, and you can determine for yourself what's right and what's wrong. And so, since that time, we've always been in, in, kind of enslaved to this same concept Going all the way back to the farthest reaches of history, man has found himself subject to forces which he can't control. My crops need rain. It's not raining. The gods must be angry. And see, so that's the first way we make a mistake. We begin to live out of a posture of life under God. And life under God is the ancient altar system. The gods are angry. I better, they want more. I had good crops this year. I better make sure I give a good sacrifice at the altar. This, this is, these are our religious systems that have that built up all over the ancient world. You'll see them all over the place. Altars all over the place to all kinds of different gods because the gods are angry. And see, this life under God posture that we talked about two weeks ago, this is cause and effect. This is what, you know, your mommy and daddy probably told you, you better, watch, you better be careful because God is watching. 
And he becomes like this eternal Santa Claus, right? Like, you know, God's watching, I better be careful. And, and so this altar system builds up in our ancient history of people. And we keep sacrificing to God, giving him more because i got to make sure he's happy. And if he's not happy, he's going to do something bad to me. And if he is happy, then he's going to bless me. But the altar system never controls your fear. Because when things go well, you think to yourself, you know, things are going really well. I better make sure that this God knows that I'm happy with him, so I better, I, better, I better sacrifice more. And if things aren't going well, then you go, things aren't going well, this God must be ticked at me, he must want more. And over the ages, through the millennia, what you see is people going to the altar, giving more and more and more to appease this God that they sense is being angry with them, to the point that pagan cultures all over the world, no internet, no airplanes, no way to commune with each other, but if you go and look all around the world, you'll see altars of child sacrifice, because they ultimately got to the point where they said, the gods are so angry, I have to give them my son. That's the fallacy of the life under God principle, cause and effect. He wants more, I have to give him more, and then he'll be happy. And if I don't give him enough, he's not going to be happy with me. This helps us think that we can control him. But at the end, we're just as afraid as when we started. What if I didn't give him enough? What if he's not happy enough? Today I want to look at three other ways that we screw up this relationship and we misdefine it. Life under God for centuries was the predominant false posture that man related to God. He's angry. He's got to be pleased. You have to keep him happy. If you do, you'll get what you want. If you don't, you're going to get punished. The ancients all related to the God that way. And the truth is, most of us relate to God that way. You know, when you do something bad, you're kind of going, oh, he's going to get, I know it. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. This is why the first thing out of so many of our mouths are when something goes wrong, the common phrase to man is, what did I ever do to deserve this? Cause and effect. That's not true. That's not the relationship. God wants to be with you. He's not, he's not this guy up in, keeping his thumb on you in the skies. So for, for, for millennia, man related to God through this concept of life under God. But something happened in the Age of Enlightenment. If you want to go back historically, it's kind of interesting. You're, you were a smart bunch. We can figure this out. The Age of Enlightenment dawns, scientific revolution comes, and this scientific discovery takes hold, and the world and man begin to relate to God in a new way now. Because now I'm starting to understand things a little bit differently than I thought before. Now I'm starting to understand how I actually can control forces that are at work amongst us. Now I start to think, I don't really need God, I just need these principles. Whereas man once believed that the world was controlled by the whimsical um, natures of the deities. Now they start to go, no, 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 that's not what's at the center of the universe. What's at the center of the universe are principles and law, and it can be controlled by predictable and rational processes. And so if I'm afraid, I don't need to any more worry about appeasing the gods. If I'm afraid about what's going to happen, all I need to do is learn to control the principles that are at work. For example, the simplest way to understand it, before the age of enlightenment, if your little child got sick, you would do anything to make it better. So what would you do? You would go and try to appease the gods through sacrifice, through your best efforts, through giving them your stuff. Age of Enlightenment dawns. Your kid gets sick. Where do you go? CVS Minute Clinic. Don't really need the god. I know the principle. I can achieve it through science now rather than superstition. This is the, the famous watchmaker analogy of God. Essentially, God's created the universe. 
He's wound the watch, he's set it in motion, and now he has stepped away, and all things are now running without his involvement. He created principles, we just need to figure them out. Live by them and we'll be back in control of our destiny. This is how, essentially, our modern world runs. Learn the principles. There's no need for God. We have math and we have science. Now, if you're of, of faith, many of us have looked at the world and said, oh, that's terrible. They've made no room for God. They've forgotten God, right? How many of us have said that about our country? They've forgotten God. We might get frustrated that it seems like the world only embraces science, but not faith any longer. But here's what we need to understand. As Christians, we do the same exact thing. In many ways, we live the same way. We don't really need to be with God. We don't really need to trust God. We just need biblical principles. Our principles are just different because they're biblical. We don't really need God. We just need biblical principles for living. We just need the instruction manual. And if we understand it, then we can rely on these principles and we have no need for God. So for many, the Bible becomes a book of divine thoughts and ideas for living rather than a vehicle for knowing and walking with God. And we exchange a relationship with God for an understanding of his rules. Great quote. If one has the repair manual, who needs the expense of the mechanic? And nothing has changed in 2,000 years. For many of us, this is the common way we relate to God. Just tell me what to do, and I'll do it, because I, I want to control my life, and I don't want anything bad to happen. So if I understand the principles, I'll be good. 2,000 years ago, this is what Jesus said to the religious people of the day. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is that they bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. 2,000 years ago, you're trying to get principles, but here I am. I am life, and you have no interest in me. You just want the rules. You want the way to live. You want how to be successful, but I'm here. And you walk right by. 2,000 years later, the number one book other than the Bible in the history of the world, anybody know what it is? It's a good book. Good techniques in it. Nothing wrong with the book. You should read the book. I highly recommend it. But the number one best-selling book of all time, Purpose Driven Life. And here's what the Purpose Driven Life, according to uh, uh, Amazon, uh, promises you. The book argues that discerning and living five God-ordained purposes, worship, community, discipleship, ministry, and evangelism, is key to effective living. If you want to control your life, use these principles. I don't need God. I don't need the messiness of God. I don't need the time-consuming nature of a relationship with him. I just need the principles for getting what it is I want. This is not Christianity. It gets marketed to us this way. This is not Christianity. This is pagan deism with Jesus slapped on top of it. This is not the with God life. This is not what you're looking for. This is why when you buy that book that promised you, how many of you bought a book and said, I'm going to read this book and I'm going to work these principles and then I'm going to be happy? And none of us ever find what we're looking for at the end of the book. It causes us to reduce faith to principles and laws and instructions. Five steps to a more godly marriage. How to raise kids God's way. Biblical laws of leadership. Jesus CEO. Managing your finances with kingdom principles. But discovering and applying these principles does not actually require a relationship with God. 
Instead, being a Christian simply means you've exchanged a worldly set of life principles, math and science, and you've taken on a new set from the Bible. Yet, in, no, in, the, in some ways, we're no different than an atheist. We put these principles into practice without God having any involvement. God could be set aside while we remain in control. He can be praised and thanked and worshipped because he gave us precepts for life. But as with an absentee watchmaker, God's present participation in our lives is altogether optional. It's now possible to have a Christian marriage, to have a Christian business, to have a Christian nation, and to do it all without Christ actually being present. And the problem when we adopt that that principle, that, that life over God principle, that, that if I learn the, the secrets, then I don't really need him. The problem is it doesn't take away our fear. It promises control by alleviating our fears, but it doesn't because trying to adopt and put these principles in place, it saddles us with this degree of responsibility that we were never meant to carry. Now it's on us. We need to make it happen. Did I follow the principles well enough? Shoot, I only worked on four of the five. That's why things are going wrong all the time. Now, lots of times our desire to live the life over God posture, I don't need God, I just need the instructions. It's fueled by our desire to, to build up our own destinies, our own greatness. Nowhere more so than in the church. Nowhere more so than in the church. As a pastor of a church, every week I am just decimated with, with new things about how to grow this church. Four strategies for church growth. Five strategies to get newcomers in. Seven strategies to keep people from leaving. See, we can build a great church and it could have absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. We just keep building things on his principles. And it's not as if the principles are wrong. Don't hear that. It's just that you can live by the principles and never know God. And his greatest desire for you is that you would be with him. There's a great story on this in the scripture. Moses, when he took his people out of Egypt into the desert to escape four centuries of bondage, you know the whole Prince of Egypt story? You probably watch it with your kids. God often revealed his great power through Moses' staff. Moses touched the waters of the Nile. It turns blood red. He lifts the staff. His staff, the, uh, the, the sea parts. And there's another famous story when the people of Israel are grumbling. When they're out in the desert, there's no water, and they're, they're thirsty. And, and Moses goes to God. God tells him to strike the rock twice with his sword, and water will flow. And Moses listens to God. He strikes the rock twice, and miraculously, water begins to flow. And the people get what it is they're looking for. And Moses started to understand something. He said, ah, I get it. Strike the rock twice. Get the water. Moses could have written a book, Two Strikes to Ever-Flowing Water. But a short time later, people are thirsty again. And they come back to Moses, and Moses begins to adopt, out of his fear, out of his desire to control, he begins to adopt a life over God posture. Dean in Numbers 20, verses 2 to 11. So good. Now there was no water for the congregation again, and they assembled themselves together with Moses and against Aaron, and they quarreled with Moses, and they said, would that we have perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly out of the Lord into the wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? Why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. There's no water to drink. 
And then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, now listen to what he told Moses to do. Devil's in the details here. He says, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock, and tell the rock, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. And you'll bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, How, Here now, you rebels. It's interesting how he accuses them of what he's about to do himself. Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand. And what did he do? He struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. The principle worked. And the congregation drank. The people loved it. God says to Moses, Moses, listen, listen. He says, Moses, trust me. Listen to me. Have faith in me. This is what I want you to do. Don't just rely on principles, Moses. I'm with you. I'm guiding you. Listen to me. Walk with me. Be with me. But Moses, facing an angry crowd, he gets scared, and he chooses principles over God. Why? Because fear and a desire for control led him not to God but to formulas. Mendham Hills, my friends, this is something we need to embrace. Every time you go to the bookstore, you will be able to turn away from some of this stuff. Do not let your fears lead you to formulas. Let them lead you to God. Do not let your fears lead you to formulas. Let them lead you to God. You see, look what happens in Numbers chapter 20, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, because you were not with me, because you chose principles over relationship, he says, because you didn't believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of people of Israel. Instead, you went to the principles. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land I've given them. Moses never, Moses got water. He never got, he never got the promised land. Moses got what he wanted in the short term. The principle worked, but he never entered the promised land. The people loved Moses. The people got what they wanted. The principles, the program worked. His church, if he was leading the church, would have grown really big. His finances might have been in great shape. He might have lost 10 pounds in 10 days on a God diet. But he, God, remained unimpressed. Don't let your fears drive you to formulas. The promise result in, they promise result in control, but in the end, they leave you just as fearful as you ever were. Shoot, I didn't get all the principles. Scott Jethani, in this book so many of us are studying, lays out two other false poser principles. And, it, and, and he does it by looking at how Jesus told one story. We looked at life under God, cause and effect relationship. Life over God, we don't really need him, we just need his principles. But he identifies two other ways we miss the with God life and settle for an imposter of life from God and life for God. These are two other principles that we live out unknowingly. We believe that we can get life from God or life for God, but not life with God. And Jesus shows these two postures so brilliantly in the story of the prodigal son. You know the story. Kid goes to his dad and essentially says, hey, dad, I want your stuff. I just am really not interested in you. I mean, that's the story, essentially, right? Actually, it was even worse in the culture of that day. Uh, to ask for your inheritance prior to your father's death was essentially to wish him dead. 
For the father, it would have been a public disgrace. He would have been embarrassed and mortified over what his son did to him. He would have been an outcast in the community. He likely would have had to sell some of his stuff just to give the kid what he wanted. And what did the kid do with the stuff once the father gave it to him? What did the kid do with the stuff once the father gave him what he wanted? He squandered it on himself and his lavish living. 2,000 years later, has anything ever changed? And Jesus uses this, this story to show us how many people try to relate to God. The son values the father's gifts more than he valued the father. Ultimately, he just wants his father's stuff. And once he had his father's stuff, the relationship with the father was completely unnecessary. This is the life from God posture. God exists, but his primary purpose is to bless me. His primary, the relationship is about me receiving from him to provide for me what I want. God, Jesus, they are but mere means to an end that I desire. Even if it's a good end. Even if it's a good end. God, repair my family. Of course God wants to repair your family. God, make me well. God, take away my cancer. Of course God, God, God will and can and, and oftentimes wants to do those things. God, fix my marriage. But here's the, dish, the deal. We fixate not on God when walking with him and loving him, but instead we fixate on what we want from him. That's the crux of the relationship, what he can do for me. But it's, it's a bankrupt posture, too. It doesn't quell our fears. Getting more and more, being more and more comfortable actually does little to quell the fears of our souls. We think it will. We think it will. But it lies. It never gives you the peace and the control that you think. There's a great study that's referenced by San Diego State University, a secular institution. They looked at the mental health records of 63,000 young adults from 1938 to 2007. And here's what they found, a dramatic upturn in psychological problems since the 1930s, mostly in depression. A quote from the study, teens today are more likely to be narcissistic, have poor self-esteem, self-control, and to say they're worried and sad and dissatisfied with life. Quote, we have become a culture that focuses on material things and less and less on relationships. You were created for the with God life. Don't choose life from God and his stuff. Give me this stuff, God, because the truth is you're not really necessary. And for us would-be followers of Jesus, we fall into this trap. Remember the inkblot test? We overlay on God what's true of ourselves, right? We live in the most consumeristic culture that has ever existed. Consumerism is deep in our bloods. So because that's who we see ourselves as, because that's what's deep in us, then we overlay that on God. And you know what? God actually must want me to have stuff. That's how he would bless. That's, how would be, that's what he would want because that's what everybody here wants. That's what I want. So that must be what God wants to give me. God is American and he wants me to be rich. And he speaks English. Right? So go to the Christian bookstore or, or watch most TV preachers. And this is the subtle and sometimes not so subtle message. God is here to meet your desires. His greatest desire is for you to have things, and that is just not true. His greatest desire is for you to have him, to be with him, to live with him, to dwell with him in every waking and sleeping moment, to commune deeply and richly with him. 
This is what you were created for. This is the only thing that will put away your fears. But Time Magazine took one look at our contemporary Christian culture and came up with this magazine cover. Because that's what we keep telling people. God just wants to give you the desires of your heart. And it's not just with money. We do it in the church too, right? You know, why do you go to Mendham Hills? Well, the preaching's not too good, but the worship's really great. Children's ministry is awesome. I'm just not getting fed there. My need, my desire, my comfort. Consume, 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 consume. God, your responsibility is to come through me. At the center of this posture, this life from God posture, is not whimsical divine will like life under God. It's not laws and principles with like life over God. At the heart of this posture, this relationship to God, you know what's at the heart of it? Me. He exists for me. And when we embrace this mentality, in the short term, getting God's stuff and pleasure can distract us for some amount of time. That's true. But in the end, it just numbs our fears and our pain, and it never takes them away. In this posture, there is no place for pain or suffering. We don't even know what to do with that when it happens. Yet the Bible tells us over and over, and you guys, many of you that have grown, if I, if I pass out a card right now, and I said to you, tell me the time where you felt closest to God. Tell me the time where you felt like you grew the most in intimacy with God. I'm telling you, almost every one of us would say it was in pain and it was in trial and it was when things were out of my control. But when, when we think that God's just about getting gifts, we leave no room for that. We don't even know what to do with that. C.S. Lewis's great quote, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience but he shouts to us in our pains. It's a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Relating to God this way, wanting his blessings more than, his, his, more than him, helps explain why we have more religious bookstores, more religious television, more religious radio, more Christian schools than we have ever had in the history of the country, and people are leaving the church in droves. Why? Because they have gotten what they want from God, and just like the younger son, they have left for a distant shore. I got what I needed. See ya. See, there's another son. There's a second son in the story, though. And the second son relates to God in another wrong way. He reflects the other relational posture that Jesus shows us is bankrupt and we often fall into the trap of, especially as church people. Because the older son, who is very different, he related to the father in a completely different way in a life where he felt that it was, the relationship was based on my life is for God. God wants me to serve him. God wants me to work for him. God just, he just wants me to be in full-time ministry. He wants me to quit my job. He wants me to give him all my stuff. See, when the younger son comes home, the life from God's son, when he returns home, the father who just wants to be with him, he waits to be with his son day and night. He waits. And he finally comes home. And when he comes home, he throws a massive party. But, but the older kid, the life for God kid, he throws himself a big party too, but it's a giant pity party. And he's out in the field complaining. And here comes the father again because the father just wants to be with his son. Out into the field he goes. And he goes and he says to the older son, 
He draws near, near him, and he finds one ticked-off kid. And the kid says, you know what? All of these years, I served you. I never disobeyed your commands, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this other son of yours come home, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. This is another corrupt posture. This is the life for God posture, which is I relate to God by doing things for him. I serve, I volunteer, I go on mission trips, I give my money, and if I do all these things, then he'll love me. Then he'll reward me. Better go to church Sunday. I mean, you should go to church on Sunday. But, but you should go to church on Sunday because you long to be with God. Not to impress him by your attendance at church. That's the story of the older son, right? If you think about it, in many ways, this is fascinating. I never heard, thought about this before. The older son is no different than the younger son. Neither of the boys were particularly interested in a relationship with their dad. Neither one of them had any priority on being with their dad. Instead, both of them were just focused on what they could get from their dad. One just took it and the other one worked for it. Both desired the same thing, and in neither case was it their father. Isn't that fascinating? Both of them just wanted something from dad, and it wasn't dad. To quote the book, both kids were jerks. One just happened to be more of a socially acceptable variety. Just something about your God. You know what's fascinating? I never, heard, I never caught this until I studied it this time, too. If you remember, the younger son, it says he comes to his senses when he's out with the pigs, and he goes home. Why does he go home? Does he go home to be with his dad? He just goes home for the same old wrong reason, which is, you know, if I go home, even my father's servants live better than this. I can still get from my dad. And you know what's fascinating about your God? He still, bring, he still accepts him home. Even with his wrong reason, he says, come. Come to me. This mindset is so prevalent in the church. There's so many folks in the church that are so worried that they're not doing enough for God. I got an email from someone this week. I don't think I pray enough. I don't think God's going to bless me. I, I haven't done enough good things. I haven't given enough money. This is so deep in, in us as, in the church. I, can see, I see preachers all the time. You know, you've got to work harder. You've got to love more. I mean, all those things are true, but if that's your primary way of relating to God, it's bankrupt. He's not impressed by you. He loves you. What brought the father joy was not the older son's service, but simply his presence, having his son with him. He said, when he went to his older son, he said, my son, you have always been with this with God life was what the father cared about most. He didn't care about his property. He didn't care about what each kid got. While the sons were fixated on their father's stuff, the father was fixated on the sons. But do you understand your God? While the kids are fixated on the father's stuff, the father is still fixated on the kids. 
Like the younger son, we often build our identities around what we receive from God. Or like the older son, we find our value in how we serve God. In the church, I've been guilty of this. In my own home a little bit, I've been guilty of this with my own kids. A great deal of effort is put into trying to change people from younger sons into older sons. But it's a fool's errand because what mattered most to the father was neither the younger son's disobedience nor the older son's obedience. But what mattered the most was having his son's with him. I ask the band to come up. We're going to close it out. I don't know how you have, if you've heard these stories, if they've resonated with you. I know that, that they've been taught to us. I know some of it comes out of our own broken nature. I know some of it comes out of Sunday school. I know some of it comes out of TV. And, and so many times we have messed this up. So if you have lived a life under God, where you've constantly thought this was all a cause and effect relationship and something happens and you go, oh no, I must have done something wrong. That's why I'm not being blessed. Or maybe you got blessed and you said, see, it's just because I'm good. Let me explain. God causes the rain to fall on both, both the good and the bad. God desires to be with you. If you have led your life thinking this primary of this relationship is just getting stuff from God. He's there to meet. He's a way for me to get what I want. Maybe even just eternal life. And many of us have gotten sold that, right? Many of us picked up a track. Many of us went to some kind of an evangelistic thing. And we came to God because we didn't want to go to hell. That's a false posture of relationship with God. God will save your soul for his eternity. But his primary point is to walk in this day and age with you now through eternity. He's not a fire insurance policy. He desires to walk with you. If you felt pressure in your life, I haven't served him enough, I haven't given enough, I haven't performed enough. I look at my own kids and go, would I ever want my kids to walk around their whole lives thinking that it was all about pleasing dad and keeping them happy so he might have some interest? I have some interest in them no matter what they do. So may you and I, especially next week, we're going to go into this life with God thing. I do want to tell you this. If this is intriguing to you, the church, not just our church, but the church in general, has done a terrible job of teaching people how to live life with God. We teach rules, we teach principles, but we don't teach how. How do I spend time with God? How do I walk with God? How do I know God? Starting two Sundays from now, the elders are going to do this by themselves, but we're inviting everybody into it that wants to do it. They're going to start practicing together the ancient disciplines of life with God. Actually, going to be using a very one of the first book I ever read as a Christian, "Celebration of Discipline" by Richard Foster. It's a very famous book. It's going to be going on during this service, and it's going to continue on for six or eight weeks as they walk through and teach each other and us how to practice these disciplines, so we don't fall into these traps, but we actually learn to live life with God. You'll be hearing more about that next week. Let's stand and close the song.